News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. Joining us on today's show, Magda Weir-Zikcha of Signia for an update on its fourth industrial revolution fund, Charles Savage, CEO of the Purple Group and Easy Equities, and Nick Downing of Overberg Asset Management, share their insights on investing in stocks, Joining us in the second half of the show, Kevin Lings, Chief Economist of Stanlip on South Africa's fiscal vulnerabilities, and Chris Hutting of the Free Market Foundation on whether South Africa should keep propping up its state-owned entities, which are gasling cash. First, the business news headlines from my business colleague, Melanie Nathan. Business confidence slid in the first quarter of the year. According to RMB, close to 7 out of 10 senior executives are concerned about current business conditions. Such low confidence levels continue to highlight the fragility of economic recovery. Against such uncertain backdrop, the best contribution the government can make is to fulfill its promise of confidence-inspiring economic reform focused on private sector becoming the key driver of GDP growth, says Chief Economist Etienne Leroux. South Africa's state-owned rail and port company says it plans to scrap contracts worth billions of dollars awarded to companies including General Electric and Bombardier. Transnet applied to the High Court to have the contracts for over a thousand locomotives set aside because it said they were based on flawed market demand strategy. The company added that laws, government instructions and Transnet policy were deliberately ignored to make tender awards, conclude the contracts and affect payment. On the company front, MTN added 29 million customers and increased its adjusted full-year headline earnings per share by over 50%. The company suspended its dividend due to its near-term focus on faster deleveraging of its holding company and uncertainty around cash repatriation from Nigeria and COVID-19. GrowthPoint has announced increased operating profit of over 4 billion rand for the six months ended in December. Headline earnings per share increased by just over 5% and a dividend of nearly 60 cents per share was declared. SoftBank's Vision Fund injected at least $400 million into Greensill Capital at the end of last year, according to people familiar with the matter, increasing the potential losses faced by the tech investor. According to the Wall Street Journal, the cash was in addition to $1.5 billion the Vision Fund had invested in Greensill in 2019. The money was used as a financial backstop when another vision fund company, construction startup Katera, came close to defaulting on a loan to Greensill. Subscribe to BizNews Premium for full access to the Wall Street Journal and more on this story. You're listening to the BizNews Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. Justin Rowe Roberts covers the Johannesburg Stock Exchange for BizNews throughout the day. Justin, take us through the main developments on the JSE. The JSE All Share Index was slightly down to 68,300. Some of the day's highlights include Old Mutual spin off Quilter climbed 8% to a 52 week high of 34 Rand a share on the back of better than expected financial results. Kumba decreased 35 Rand to 600 Rand a share with iron ore prices declining as China's infrastructure-led economic recovery begins to plateau. South Africa's second-largest telecommunications provider, MTN, de- decreased slightly to 74 rand a share as the company released its year-end results and suspended dividend payments. Despite Tencent up strongly in Hong Kong this morning, NASPIS and Process were both flat at 3,500 and 1,750 rand respectively. In the currency markets, the rand strengthened against all the major currencies to 15 rand and 14 cents against the greenback, 21 rand and 8 cents against the sterling, and 18 rand and 5 cents against the euro. Gold was flat on the day at $1,718 an ounce. Bitcoin continues to surge with one coin of the premier cryptocurrency putting you back 850,000 rand. And lastly, Brent crude was flat at $67 a barrel. 
Charles Boerter keeps business visitors up to date with important announcements on the Stock Exchange news service. Charles, you've been delving into MTN's results today and its aspirations to grow in other large African economies. Please take us through the details. Yes, Jackie. Uh, my colleagues uh, spoke to the financial performance of MTN. What, what I want to highlight here is the medium-term plans. So MTN wants to be a pan-African digital platform company, which essentially means um, it's going into fintech, finance and tech combined, in the MIMO uh, product range. That is sort of the M-Pesa, MTN's M-Pesa. And then they're going into music and video streaming and also insurance. So, yeah. And then they're also selling their towers. And they're selling their towers to raise cash to put into these other digital ventures. Thank you very much, Shaul. That was Shaul Boerter who covers Stock Exchange News Service Announcements for Biz News. It's a very warm welcome to Magda Vizikska, who heads the Signia Group. Magda, your Signia Itrix fourth industrial revolution global equity ETF is mentioned often on business shows by financial <laughs> intermediaries. Indeed, uh, a flagship product. Magda, I see on your fund has about 2 billion rand in assets under management, 100% offshore equity. Is, is your fund able to invest more offshore? It is. So, so the, you know, we have two different vehicles tracking exactly the same indices and investing in exactly the same stocks. We've got a unit trust and we have the exchange traded fund. So between them, we manage about 5.5 billion in this fourth industrial revolution, um, strategy. Um, and in terms of the exchange traded fund vehicle, we have absolutely no limits on capacity that we can accept and take offshore. So it's a very specific structure of foreign ETFs that there's actually no cap on the forex exposure via the ETFs. Magda, your fund's been doing very well for your investors because obviously a lot of these stocks have been doing well. And I see it also on your fact uh, sheet, if you'd invested 100 rand in this fund in December 2017, it would be worth more than 250 rand three years later. But now we're getting all these warnings from various uh, stock market fundies like Ray Dalio and Jeremy Grantham that tech stocks Mm -hmm. are about to explode. In your fund, are these the tech stocks they've been warning us about? No. So I think, you know, if people don't understand about the fourth industrial revolution fund, and, you know, when you look at the fund factory, you will notice that. It's the fact that the fund has over 380 holdings in it. And there isn't, you know, I think the largest holding in the fund is 2.8% of the fund. Um, and the fourth industrial revolution fund invests in many digital themes. So it is absolutely everything that un- underpins fourth industrial revolution. It is, you know, virtual reality and drones, autonomous vehicles, electrical vehicles, um, genetics and genomics, gene therapies. So, um, you know, there are so many different themes that underpin the fourth industrial revolution fund that we actually refer to it as a bit of a market index of disruptive innovation fund, if you like. Um, so whereas, you know, if, if you look at some of the funds that are quoted as potentially imploding, such as, uh, you know, the, the ARC asset management funds, which are often quoted because they have delivered similar returns to the fourth industrial revolution fund, the holdings in the ARC fund, uh, for instance, there's a 10% holding in Tesla, which obviously has seen a massive revaluation last year. In the fourth industrial revolution fund, I think Tesla stands at one and a half percent of the fund. We have, you know, in the top 10 holdings, we don't have Microsoft, we don't have Google, we don't have Apple, we don't have Amazon. Um, so in fact, it's a very, very broadly diversified fund. But having said that, the fund delivered, you know, 88% return in dollar terms last year. And we do expect that given the volatility in the market currently and given the nervousness around inflation, because that's what that's what everything that you're seeing is about. It's nervousness about inflation. Um, you know, we, we do anticipate that there might be a pullback, but if there is a pullback, again, it becomes an issue of a buying opportunity because, you know, what underpins the fourth industrial revolution fund is the future. It's the future themes of investing. It's the future disruptive technologies. It's what's going to drive returns going forward. 
Um, so, you know, if you are an investor who can stomach some short-term volatility but has a five-year time horizon, then, you know, I firmly, firmly believe this is the funds to be invested in. And certainly a lot of my money is invested in this fund. That's very interesting. So you actually have your own money in this fund. Oh, indeed. Indeed. In the ETF. <laughs> a lot. Well, that's good to hear. So you put your money where your mouth is. That's excellent. My colleague, Absolutely. Justin Roe Roberts, has a question for you. Magda, globally, we're seeing this rotation from value stocks into, uh, sorry, from growth stocks into value. Are you guys positioning your funds for this rotation? So, you know, the rotation that you are seeing, you know, is all about nervousness around valuations. And the nervousness is being driven by the fact that, and again, it's, I'll repeat it again, it's all about fears of inflation and what that will do to interest rates. So, you know, we're facing a situation where U.S. is about to pass a $1.9 trillion, uh, you know, relief package. Um, and that has heightened inflation expectations and heightened expectations that interest rates will go up faster than expected. Although, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, inflation number that came out today is kind of in line with expectations and not higher, which would have spooked the markets, and it hasn't. Um, so, you know, what you are seeing is, you know, you are seeing investors trying to time the exit from stocks which potentially have enjoyed very strong returns last year into stocks that have not. Now, in, you know, in our minds, um, you know, we, we are certainly in, in our uh, multi-asset class portfolios positioning ourselves for that rotation. But having said that, you know, we are long-term investors and we do believe that the truth of the matter is that many of the old-fashioned, you know, value um, companies might very well be value traps uh, rather than, you know, something that will deliver value simply because it hasn't run last year. So all of a sudden it's become value. So would you invest in, you know, a solar generation company today, energy generation company today or in a coal mine? Uh, you know, a value investor will tell you definitely coal mining. Um, whereas, you know, we would rather invest in solar innovation. Um, so it all depends on, you know, how long your time horizon is. And we are not short-term investors. Um, so, you know, short-term volatility in the markets doesn't bother us that much. And, uh, you know, we would much rather take strong views on asset classes than we would on individual stocks and trying to, you know, play the guessing game between what constitutes value and what doesn't. My colleague Alec Hogg has a question for you. Magda, good to have you on the program tonight with us. Uh, I, I would like to find out from you uh, how big your exposure is to emerging tech. And I, I ask this because in Ray Dalio's mm -hmm. uh, analysis that he, he put out last week that we spent a lot of time on, he said emerging tech is in a bubble, not the big tech stocks, but mm -hmm. those uh, maybe companies yes. that you put lots of money into and haven't yet got to profitability. Mm -hmm. How well exposed are they in the Fourth Industrial Revolution Fund? So, Alec, uh, it's a very good question. And hence my comment of saying, you know, we have over 380 different stocks in the fourth industrial revolution fund and not any one stock is, I mean, literally most of the stocks are under 1% in terms of, um, uh, in terms of weighting. Many of these stocks are revenue producing and, you know, the, the whole premise of fourth industrial revolution fund when we launched it in 2016 was to invest in companies where, you know, not unprofitable companies, not startups. They were companies which were dedicating a percentage of the R&D spend towards the disruptive technologies. So we haven't invested in, you know, loss-making companies. We have invested in companies which rather than buying back their shares, which is what we have seen from some of these big uh, behemoths of, you know, SAP 500 the last year in the U.S. in particular, we have invested in companies which have used cash on their balance sheet to invest in R&D, in the broad theme of fourth industrial revolution. So we are not actually particularly concerned that there is a huge bubble 
which underpins the fourth industrial revolution fund, which is, you know, not to say that if there is a rotation out of tech stocks, that the fourth industrial revolution fund isn't going to give some of the returns back because, you know, you can appreciate that 88% return in one year is an extraordinary value appreciation. But I think on a five-year view, we have only begun. And, you know, as an example, I'll give you, you know, one statistic, and that is the global sales of electrical vehicles right now stand at 2.2 million um, annually globally. That is projected to go to 40 million within five years. So, you know, would you disinvest from any electrical vehicle company or any company that is in that electrical vehicle ecosystem. So be it battery production or be it, you know, charging stations, you wouldn't. Um, so we do believe that the fund has, you know, a long way to go, but we appreciate that there might be some short-term volatility. Just to follow up on that, uh, given that you're saying, uh, you're talking a lot about electrical vehicles, are you a Kathy Wood from ARC fan? <laughs> Yes and no uh, is the answer. I truly believe that, you know, some of the things, and, and for those uh, of the listeners who don't know Kathy Wood, it's really worthwhile to, to go on YouTube and listen to some of her videos. She's a CEO and CIO of ARC Asset Management. And I think she's a visionary in terms of, um, you know, her views of the future. Um, you know, she started ARC in 2014. We started the Fourth Industrial Revolution Fund in 2016. And I didn't know about her then. I wish I had started the Fourth Industrial Revolution Fund in the U.S. because we would be managing, you know, $5 billion, not uh, 5 billion rent, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> um, what However, what she does is, you know, and what ARC does is active asset management under an exchange traded fund rep. And they take very, very large positions. So for instance, the largest position in the equivalent of a fourth industrial revolution fund, um, fund, the innovation fund is a 10% position in Tesla. Now, you know, that is a bet. You know, that is a very active bet. On Tesla, and hence, you know, her funds are going to be significantly more volatile than what we are offering through the Fourth Industrial Revolution Fund. So, not a believer in active asset management, never have been. Um, you know, I do believe that a much more broadly diversified exposure, such as you know what we have in the Fourth Industrial Revolution Fund, offers you heck of a lot more safety than you know taking a ten percent bet on Tesla, which then has invested a lot of money in Bitcoin. <laughs> Magda, you say you aren't a believer in active management, but uh, you were shrewd enough to go and buy shares from Neil Woodford in the Oxford Scientific Innovation Fund long before the word COVID-19 was uh, you know, even in existence, Indeed. Uh, which suggests that you are a bit more active than meets the eye. But is this, fu- is this yeah. still held in the Fourth Industrial Revolution Fund? How, how do people get into this um, investment? And oh. perhaps you could just tell us a bit more about how it's going now that AstraZeneca has uh, yeah. encountered a few challenges. So I think um, um, let, let's start with Oxford Sciences Innovation. Um, it's a company which is, again, for listeners who don't know, it's a very interesting company um, because it's actually a platform company. It's a joint venture between certain asset managers and um, Oxford University. And effectively, OSI has exclusive rights to commercialize all IP which emerges out of Oxford. And since it was formed as a company in 2015. Um, it has spun out 82 different companies. Um, so effectively, OSI is a little bit of a platform company, if you like, which is very, which very much talks to kind of tech platform investing. But majority of the companies that have been spun out of OSI are in the field of life sciences. One of those companies is Basitech, which has developed the IP behind the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, and in fact, you know, the AstraZeneca vaccine has gotten a little bit of, you know, bad press and undeservedly so. So AstraZeneca has been caught up in, you know, global wars of, you know, in, in vaccine supply chains. Um, you know, it is a very good vaccine. There is absolutely no, you know, it, it obviously has slightly lower efficacy than Pfizer and Moderna, but it is also significantly cheaper. 
Um, and, you know, in terms of the Vasitech team and Oxford team who are working on the formula behind the AstraZeneca vaccine, I believe that they've already adjusted the formula to cater for the South African variant and that, you know, the, the manufacturing will be adjusted by autumn to, you know, in, in terms of the vaccine itself to, to work against uh, the South African variant. Uh, among others, and hopefully against the Brazilian variant as well. I think that, you know, the, the AstraZeneca manufacturing process, um, in particular in Europe, literally has gotten caught up in politics, in particular in the Euro, uh, Eurozone, uh, because, you know, they have not been as organized as UK has been in terms of the... I think we you've got countries... Oh, sorry. So you've sorry, got countries bedmouthing vaccines. Continue? Oh, sorry. So you currently have this, you know, kind of a warfare going on about uh, access to vaccines. And I think the manufacturing production of the AstraZeneca vaccine has been caught up in some of that, you know, war of words between different European countries. And where they can't get access to a particular vaccine, they're either blocking um, exports of vaccines, so they are bad-mouthing vaccines, and for whatever reason, AstraZeneca seems to have gotten, you know, the, the uh, short end of the stick. Um, it's a very effective vaccine. Um, it's a very cost-effective vaccine, um, and I wish we haven't wasted the one half million doses that South Africa has gotten, because, um, you know, it could have protected and saved lives. Before we close off here, what do you make of the South African government's approach to AstraZeneca? One minute we're receiving it, the next minute it's being sent off. Have you been able to advise the government behind the scenes at all? Um, that I won't comment on. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that um, the South African government's approach is basically to, to the procurement of vaccines. And, you know, I, I always say, look, it's very easy to criticize with hindsight. The truth of the matter is that countries such as UK, uh, who have got access to the vaccines, have gotten access to those vaccines by putting a lot of money at risk in April, May last year and pre-ordering vaccines which were not developed even, that have not gone through clinical trials yet. And clinical trials cost, you know, a heck of a lot of money. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of South Africa and other developing markets, which are not cash flash, uh, we just did not have the money to, to go on risk to put, you know, 10 billion. And, and I know you are about to mention SAA, but, you know, we, we really don't, are not in a financial position to, to back SAA either, but to, to put money at risk. Um, as a consequence of the fact that, you know, we didn't have that foresight. We have now found ourselves in a position of effectively being a little bit of a beggar in, in terms of, you know, a begging bowl and, you know, asking various manufacturing companies for literally the, the, you know, the, the overproductions. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not a great space to be in. What gives me greater hope in terms of South Africa is not a procurement, vaccine procurement policies. I've got no confidence in that. But what I do have greater confidence in is that we are well on our way to developing herd immunity in this country because we had this highly infectious South African strain of the virus. It has infected a much greater percentage of the population than anywhere else. And, you know, I listened to Adrian Gove Discovery talking about the fact that you know, from what they're seeing in, in blood donation centers, you know, they estimate that approximately 50% of the population has developed antibodies to the virus. And, you know, development of antibodies to the virus is just as good as a vaccine. So, and, and it's cheaper. Um, so, so I'm not saying that we shouldn't get ourselves organized in terms of vaccine procurement, but given the fact that developed markets are struggling, to get access to vaccines. I'm not seeing South Africa at the forefront of, you know, being able to procure sufficient vaccines to, to inoculate the entire population or at least 70% to achieve, you know, this kind of herd immunity through vaccination.
You've been listening to Magda Vizikcha of Signia for an update on its fourth industrial revolution fund and also an update on its smart investment in a company that has been developing the AstraZeneca vaccine against COVID-19. It's a warm welcome to Charles Savage, CEO of Purple Group and Easy Equities. Welcome, Charles. Thanks for having me on. It's very nice. Yep, I'm here. Hi there. Uh, is the fourth the Signia Fourth IR fund popular among your investors? Yeah, I was listening with interest. I mean, it is, and so are the ARC uh, ETFs. So retail investors really like this exposure. Um, they like what Signia has done with the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and certainly what Cathy's uh, doing with ARC. So they like both of them. And what's really interesting for our listeners who don't know, Charles, perhaps we can just take a step step back, and you can just explain how it is so easy for people to buy. ARC ETF and Fourth Industrial Revolution from the comfort or the ease of their their mobile phone? Yeah, so I mean, six years ago, we set out on a journey to eliminate all of the friction points in getting retail investors investing, not just in local stocks, but international stocks. And essentially, we created a platform that lives up to its name, Easy Equities, uh, and really makes it for the man, uh, easy for the man in the street, whether he's got 100 rand or 100,000 rand to buy uh, the stocks that they love or the ETFs that they love and to move money from South Africa to America and invest in U.S. stocks um, and, you know, essentially eliminate all of the, the barriers to entry that were prevalent in the market six years ago. What are these barriers to entry that you've eliminated? Look, Expensive to start with, <laughs> no, to start with, um, the industry was shrouded with minimum. So minimum investment value, minimum um, uh, brokerage, uh, values literally everywhere you look. So when you stacked up the minimums, you excluded about 95% of the, of the retail opportunity, i.e. 95% of Africans would have been, wouldn't have been able to afford those minimums. So there are no minimums in our platform. And I guess that with hindsight, the thing that really disrupted, um, our business model was that we fractionalized access. So not only was it expensive to get access to these stocks, but the stocks themselves are expensive. So if we use the case of Amazon, it's a $3,000 stock. And, you know, who's got $3,000 to invest in Amazon? Um, and so what we did is we fractionalized access. So you can buy $5 of Amazon or $1 of Amazon. And in the South African context, if we take NASPAS, which is about a 3,000 Rand stock, the same applies. You can buy one Rand of NASPAS or 50 Rand of NASPAS. And so, you know, we eliminated all of these minimums and then fractionalized access so that, you know, somebody who's got 100 Rand in their wallet can go in and buy one rand of 100 stocks or 10 rand of the 10 stocks that they've, they want to own. So we've often heard from the more traditional stockbrokers when you speak about these high minimums that you need a high minimum to make the costs of investing worthwhile. So are your costs higher than the others? <laughs> no, they're lower than everyone else's. I mean, we're the cheapest platform in South Africa by some measure. Um, for every 100 rand that you invest, it costs you 25 cents in brokerage. So, you know, your your investment goes to where it should go, which is the stock that you want to invest in. And I think, you know, that adage comes out of the fact that no one had, re- had radically disrupted uh, equity investing. So all of the business models that came before us were built around a business that had 10,000 or 20,000 customers. I mean, we've got 350,000 active customers, and that's growing at about 2,000 a day. So there's massive scale uh, in our platform, and that scale allows us to give or to democratize access and give low-cost investing to everyone. Charles, Justin Roe Roberts covers the JSE for business, so he really wants to ask you a couple of questions. Justin? Charles, brokerage fees around the world are going close to zero. How is Easy looking to generate revenue going forward? Yeah, look, that's an, it's not all around the world. So it's really only in America that that force is prevalent. And the market setup is very different there. So you can sell flow uh, in that market, and there are lots of market makers and funds, institutions, hedge funds that will buy that flow from you. It really is the only market in the world where that's a viable business model. So the zero um, approach hasn't worked anywhere else. And that's just because the market setup is different everywhere else. So we don't see the trend towards zero on, on brokerage. But what we do see is that you've got to provide more and more functionality and service across a platform. And at each level, you've got to charge a fair rate. And in the aggregate, you get a good return for your platform investment. And things are going to continue to get cheaper. That's a, you know, that's a very positive force, but they're not going to tend to zero. Uh, and the zero business models are under threat. You know, they've got, you've seen it play out in Robinhood. Um, you know, the fact that it's zero means that they're selling your flow to someone else 
and discerning investors may choose rather to pay a broker and not have their flow sold in the future. So I, th- I think the debate is out on zero, and it certainly is only a trend that's happened that's worked uh, in the U.S. And Charles, what are the other investments in the Purple Group? Everyone knows the easy equities, but no one no one seems to know the other investments in the Purple Stable. Yeah, so we have GT247.com that's been around 20 years, and you know that's what brought me to the group. It's an online derivatives day trading platform for speculative traders. It's much closer to Robinhood uh, than Easy Equities in that it provides leverage and uh, and access to derivative contracts, so things like options and warrants. Uh, then we have M for Asset Management, which is a little-known business but won a Raging Bull Award for the best uh, investment manager last year, uh, best global fund against all the heavyweights. So we expect to see more of that in the year ahead. Uh, and then we've got Easy Equities, and under Easy Equities, we've got a few companies. We've got Easy Properties, which is fractional access to large-scale residential development that is only six months old and and, do, and going great guns, 30,000 customers and about 100 million in assets already. Um, and then we've got Rise, which is a retirement uh, savings administration platform, which we've set up to see if we can disrupt the old uh, admin, asset administration space which is currently sort of controlled by guys like Alexander Forbes and others. And we think that marrying our technology with the operational NAS of somebody who understands administration, we think we can create the same outcomes in that space as we have in Easy Equity. Charles, you're going to be speaking at the Business Investment Conference in the Drakensberg next week. Can you give us a little sneak preview into what you might be telling the delegates? Sure. I mean, we're going to talk about crypto and the rise of crypto and, and, and what that means, uh, both in, in terms of the South African landscape, but globally. You know, it's a fast moving, um, asset class now. And it's not just about Bitcoin and Ethereum. There's lots more to discover NFTs, DeFi, and just, you know, do an education around what, how the landscape, where the landscape finds itself, what are the trends and where it's moving. And then to talk more uh, about fractional investing and, uh, it's the unintended consequences and benefits of what fractional investing could mean uh, and where it can be applied. Because in our view, we think fractional investing represents the future uh, ownership structures of almost everything. Uh, and whilst it's easy and obvious to see in something like share ownership uh, and easy with hindsight, I guess, to see otherwise someone would have done it a long time ago, but we think it can play a role in crowdfunding, uh, as I've said, in property ownership, in uh, even things like um, funding a project for power or solar. So we think fractional, we're going to talk a bit about that and, and how uh, we see fractional sort of investing, disrupting not just uh, equity asset classes, but all asset classes in the future. Charles, thanks for agreeing to come to our conference. We really, it's Alec Hogg here, sorry. Uh, we're really looking forward to, to having you there. Uh, just, just by way of background, though, fractional investing, we were talking today, for instance, with the guys from Orbvest, and they brought fractional investing into medical properties in the U.S. It seems to be picking up and quite a wave of democratizing invest, investing so that ordinary people who maybe don't have the the deep pockets that are required to buy an Amazon share, etc., can actually participate. Is it just the U.S. and South Africa, or are you seeing it elsewhere? No, uh, we're seeing it in the U.K. now as well. Um, we we haven't seen it in any other markets yet. The regulators, in some instances, the regulators have been slow to uh, embrace it or adopt it. I mean, interestingly, in America, fractional investing has been around since the stock exchange, so that's over a hundred years. But you could only access a fraction of a share through a telephone conversation with a broker. You could never trade it electronically. So it's been around that long. Um, what the trend now is, is to, is to enable access digitally so that people can do this online. And where, you know, as I said, the most obvious user case is shares, but we're seeing it in strange places. I mean, in America, we've seen it in classic cars, uh, in horse racing, Alex, something I know you know a bit about. Uh, we've actually just seen fractional investing in horses in China and Hong Kong. So it's becoming more prevalent, um, but the, the real momentum is, uh, well, it has been in America and I guess South Africa uh, as well, but and other markets are starting to catch on uh, to you know this innovation. You've been listening to Charles Savage, who will be speaking at the Business Investment Conference in the Drakensberg next week. Charles is the CEO of Purple Group and Easy Equities. You can find the full details of the investment conference at biznews.com. You're listening to the Business Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. 
Nick Downing, CEO of Overberg Asset Management, which specializes in the management of private share portfolios, is with us now. Nick, before we pick your brain on investment ideas, please tell us briefly what your investment philosophy is. I see your local returns have outpaced the JAC All Share Index over the last few years, which is no mean feat. Okay, uh, well, thank you very much, Jackie. Um, yes, uh, our philosophy is uh, private uh, share portfolios for private clients. Each client's portfolio is segregated in the name of the client. Uh, we have local portfolios and overseas portfolios. The um, We don't hug the benchmark. Uh, the portfolios are very much long-term and uh, tailored to suit the exact requirements of the client. So it could be capital growth, it could be income, a mixture of the two different risk profiles. Um, and I think one of the real philosophies of our company as well is the level of service. So uh, all our clients can speak directly with any number um, of people within the company, including the asset management team, anyone in the asset management team. So we don't hide away in ivory towers. Uh, and the sales uh, representatives, um, already client relationship representatives, uh, forge a very, very close connection and relationship with the clients uh, so that we can really understand what their fears and expectations might be. Nick, I see that in your global portfolios, you've been focusing on UK funds, which is going against the herd a bit. We heard earlier about four IR uh, investments. So a lot of attention has been focused on US stocks, but you've got very interesting uh, investment trusts in your global growth portfolio, I see. Can you just take us through what an investment trust is for South Africans who aren't familiar with this type of investment vehicle and why you've got this focus? So... Um the investment trusts, uh, they're also known as investment companies. Um, the, the ones that are in our clients' portfolios are all listed on the London Stock Exchange. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say uh, that the underlying exposure is to the UK. So in point of fact, the current underlying exposure in our clients' portfolios is around 24%. Uh, with a bulk in the States, uh, a healthy exposure to Japan, China, Europe. Uh, and recently, we've increased quite substantially the exposure to emerging markets. Um, and one of those is actually Vietnam. So, um, yes, these investment companies are very liquid. Uh, they're controlled by the shareholders. They often trade at discounts to net asset value. Uh, by and large, they um, outperform the collective investment schemes because of the low cost structures, but also because of the greater flexibility. They are allowed to adopt gearing. Uh, they are able to match liquidity um, withdrawals because, of course, there's a limited number of shares initially. So we can get access to all sorts of very exciting alternative asset classes uh, like private equity, royalty streams, uh, infrastructure, renewable energy. Um, and that's just not possible. Uh, in un just any tell us a bit more about your, your interest in Japan. Japan's been quite a, an unloved uh, geographic focus, but you've, you've mentioned that you're going for Japan. Is that because you have a, a contrarian approach to investing? Or what are you seeing in Japan that everybody else should be seeing? So Japan is a very, very exciting opportunity. It's, I suppose one could say it's one of the ultimate value plays. Uh, it's so cheap compared to where it's been historically. Uh, so it trades at, at, um, even cheaper than all the other developed equity markets, whereas in the past, in, in the heyday of the late 80s, early 90s, it was trading at a premium of three or four times all the other emerging markets, and clearly that was a bubble. Uh, but now it trades at about half the level in terms of price-to-book, price-to-earnings multiples. Um, so it really is a value play. And as many of your listeners have probably heard from other panel discussions, that there's a big rotation underway at the moment away from the digital 
mega cap tech stocks into um, into the the value stocks. Nick? My colleague Alec Hogg has a question for you, Nick. Nick, uh, you've spoken a little bit about value in South Africa. Property looks to be good value. Growth points results came out today. Have you had a chance to look at them? Uh, Alec, yes, um, we did look at the results from growth points. Um, certainly, there does seem to be a lot of value. We calculated that the discount to net asset value is about 33%. Um, so that's incredibly attractive at face value. So if we bear in mind that a couple of years ago when the share was trading above 30 rands, it was trading, uh, I think, at a slight premium to net asset value. Uh, now it's at 14 rands and it's trading at a 33% discount. But there are some caveats. So um, the loan to value, that's to say the amount of debt on the balance sheet relative to the value of the properties is very high. It's at 40%. Um, it had been at 43% at the um, final results at the end of June last year. It's come down to 40, which seems very good. But that's only because uh, the company had a 4.2 billion rands rights issue. And then one has to look at the value. So it's loan to value. How accurate and, and how sustainable are those property values? It's very possible that uh, with um, the growing trend of working from home, online retailing, the substantial exposure to office property in the portfolio, that there'll be further um, asset write-downs uh, in the balance sheet. And um, one could say, well, it's an exciting RAND hedge stock. They have exposure to Australia and the UK. But the UK exposure is really uh, to shopping malls. So it's a really poor part of the market, of the REIT commercial property market, in our opinion. And the loan to value in the UK is 62%. So, um, you know, once... LTVs get to 55%, then they breach the loan covenants or covenants with the banks. Uh, and that potentially, um, well, that would be stressful to the, the, the debt holders and also the equity holders in the capital structure. But um, having said all that, if there's a very strong rebound in the economy and the vacancy rates can drop, and the rental collections can increase, and then the share could be a good investment. I mean, it's up 20% already since the beginning of the year. Nick, before we close off here, Equitas, did I see that in your portfolio? Equitas is a company that is invested in logistics and the e-commerce sector type properties. Yes, so, so that uh, is a sector of the market that we are very excited about, the uh, logistics Part of the market, uh, I think, is very exciting. Uh, as companies um, like Take A Lot, Amazon um, take off, I mean, they already have done worldwide, and I think the trend will really gather momentum in South Africa. Then companies like Equitas um, are in the right space. So it's storage of consumer products, but also industrial products, logistics. Um, so it is an exciting part of the uh, of the REITs sector. You've been listening to Nick Downing, CEO of Overberg Asset Management. It's a very warm welcome to Kevin Lings, Chief Economist at Stanlib. Kevin, you wrote today that South Africa's current fiscal vulnerability is regarded as the highest within a range of emerging markets. Please explain why South Africa has this very unwelcome moniker. Thanks, Jackie. Yeah, it's not a great outcome, but uh, it really reflects, I guess, a range of factors that combine to give you what's called uh, fiscal uh, fiscal policy vulnerability. And in our instance, it relates to, let's say, three things. One is, can you get the deficit down? Can you reduce the government's fiscal deficit systematically to below... 3% of GDP within a reasonable period of time. And if you think South Africa's deficit has been up at 14%, uh, we're now looking at a projection of 9%, but 9% is just way too high 
relative to what becomes sustainable. And so South Africa stands out amongst emerging markets as being particularly vulnerable in terms of the overall deficit and the rate at which we will get that deficit under control. The second factor is how much we've got to raise in terms of finance over the next year. And that's fairly high, obviously, because of the debt maturity of existing debt plus uh, the existing deficit. So it means that the government is going to be turning to uh, the market to raise a significant amount of finance. And then uh, I guess the third factor is what happens if interest rates move up? Can we deal with an interest rate increase? And when you compare those three factors and you put them together, then unfortunately, in combination, South Africa ranks as the most vulnerable out of all of the emerging markets uh, that we've looked at. And uh, obviously, that's a concern. The government is saying to us or saying to everybody that they want to get the deficit under control and effect fiscal discipline. And obviously, that's to be applauded. But Sini uh, is believing and there's a long way to go to get that established. And in the meantime, if we can't make progress, then we are vulnerable. And Kevin, I see in your towards the end of your article, you mentioned that South Africa is keeping company with Brazil, Mexico and Colombia and Argentina, which you note is heading into a failed state. At what point do economists decide that a country is a failed state? And really, is South Africa close to being a failed state in your view? South Africa is not, not quite at that point. We would have a lot uh, to go in terms of... Uh, weakness and uh, undermining institutional capacity, all kinds of things would have to go wrong from here in order for us to be viewed as a failed state. It's not so much that uh, economists are, are classify an economy as being a failed state, it's really how the markets interpret it and whether the markets are willing to provide that country with finance, whether they're willing to um, provide any sort of support, whether they're willing to do business, and in Argentina's case, it's got to that point where they're on the brink of being regarded as failed. In other words, they can't really function in the normal sense of the word and would require extraordinary intervention that goes beyond simply IMF support. South Africa's nowhere near that in terms of uh, the destruction. Uh, obviously, we've had significant deterioration over the last couple of years, and the speed of deterioration has to be a substantial concern. But no, that's some way off. Where I think we, we've got to be a little bit more concerned, though, is that there are a, there's a basket of emerging market countries that you don't really want to be part of. Think of it as the bad crowd, the, the, the naughty kids, if you like. And, and once you include it in that basket, you tend to then find your currency coming under pressure. You tend to find yourself paying up for external finance. You'll find your credit ratings under pressure. And South Africa has slipped into that category. And you would put a, a country like Brazil firmly in that category. Uh, certainly Russia at times has, has been in that. They've got the advantage of having very little government debt. Uh, Colombia has been in that sort of category. So uh, unfortunately, South Africa established itself at the bottom end of the emerging market scale. And the, and the biggest weakness is government finances. And so what we find in there is that if we look at just the vulnerability of government finances, then South Africa's firmly in that camp. We've got other factors that give us a little bit more of a positive feel, but uh, in terms of uh, our ability to raise money and uh, manage our fiscal position, we're near the bottom. And clearly that's where the work has to be done. And just for our listeners who aren't familiar with what ratings agencies do, can you just explain why these are so important for the economy? So the rating agencies essentially give uh, governments, give companies, state-owned enterprises, large companies, uh, credit ratings. And those credit ratings are vital if you want to raise finance, either domestically or internationally. And it's no different to if you went to a bank and the bank assessed how, how risky you are at a client and they may or may not be willing to do business with you. So the better your credit rating, the more able you are to raise finance and, and most importantly, the cheaper you can obtain that finance. And so you want to get your credit rating as high as possible and then keep it there. And uh, there's kind of a cutoff 
in the uh, the global financial system where you want to be regarded as an investment grade credit rating. That generally allows you to attract a whole range of other investors. Uh, but in South Africa's case, yes, we were investment grade. We've dropped to below investment grade. Uh, we call that junk status. It's not technically junk status, but that's how it's referred to. And obviously what that means is it becomes more expensive, more difficult to raise finance. And you can keep going down in terms of your credit rating um, until you get to the point where you default. So it's not as if you just before below that uh, investment grade and that's it. You can keep being revised lower. And right now, South Africa is on a negative outlook from two of the rating agencies. And, and what the rating agencies are telling us is if we don't improve this fiscal position, we'll see another ratings uh, downgrade. And when we look at the in isolation at the fiscal vulnerability of South Africa, the risk is very significant. So we've got to be mindful of that. Thank you very much for those insights, Kevin. You've been listening to Kevin Lings, Chief Economist at Stanlib. Coming up, we've got Chris Hutting, who has produced a very powerful article, which is on biznews.com, which picks up on state-owned enterprises. He has uh, taken on Public Enterprises Minister Previn Gordon, who was once considered something of a hero in South Africa for taking on the corrupt and the crooked. Chris, can you just briefly sketch out what your key arguments are? Uh, good evening, Jackie, and uh, good evening to the listeners. Thank you very much for the opportunity uh, to be on the program. So um, Mr. Gordon, he wrote an article last week or on Sunday in the Sunday Times in which he talks about plans to turn around state-owned enterprises, um, you know, I guess fancy words around compacts and, and plans and how things will get better and government is serious about fixing things. And he, one of the main things he said, and I quote, is that the free market is not a panacea for resolving economic and institutional challenges. So, of course, I'm assuming he's concerned about moves to either privatize or downsize SOEs such as ESCOM, maybe let SAA go, that kind of thing. And the thrust of my reply to his his article, his argument was that I don't pretend that the free market is a utopian solution to all of South Africa's economic and social problems, but I think it's better than everything else on offer. And I think we should try some of it. I think it would be silly to say that South Africa has had a strong free market policy outlook for the last 20 years in every sphere we've seen increased government spending and increased government control. And with that comes the resultant effect. So, for example, we had more than 10 million people unemployed before COVID-19 came. We had people struggling to make a living. Um, we had rising inequality. Uh, we had barriers to employment and barriers to job creation. So in no way did we have free market policies. And I think if the government was serious about unlocking people's potential, it would look at scaling back its interventions in their lives and look at how it can move out of the way and let people create wealth for themselves instead of being reliant on the state. Just for our international listeners who aren't familiar with this whole concept of state-owned enterprises and why they are considered so important in the economy by our politicians, but also why, why they dominate our economy, can you just explain very briefly why we have these big uh, white elephants? So I think part of it is informed by the National Democratic Revolution, the sort of guiding ideology of the ruling party, um, the view of the ruling party that it should be in charge of most of the levers of the economy to the end of quote unquote transforming the economy. Now, I think that transformation is very much downward and not progressive. It simply increases the control of the state over people's lives. So you have things in terms of service delivery, like ESCOM with electricity. You have SAA, a state owned airline. You have Transnet um, with the, the railways um, you, and PRASA, of course. You have the SABC, the Broadcasting Corporation. So the state should be involved in giving people entertainment and news. So all of these are informed by the ideological view that the state needs to be central in people's lives. And um, there's an economist, uh, Deirdre McCloskey. She last year wrote a book called uh, The Myth of the, of the Developmental and Entrepreneurial State, and I would recommend that as reading. And it's just this idea that the state needs to create uh, employment and jobs and wealth through these grand uh, schemes and plans, for example, infrastructure, that kind of thing that the main driver of economic activity is government spending. Um, I think 
whatever the government does might be well-intentioned, but it can never be as efficient as what the, the market can allocate. And I don't think in the end it can create nearly the kind of robust jobs that one envisages. I mean, we could have 100% employment if the government gave everyone a shovel and asked them to dig a trench, but I don't think it's the kind of job that most South Africans would want for their the majority of their lives. But at this point, they simply don't have a choice uh, in terms of where they get work because of the high barriers to employment. Chris, that's very interesting, the point that you brought up there, because the government is being informed by the views of Mariana Mazzucatu, who has written about the entrepreneurial state or the entrepreneurial right. development state. Who's winning that argument? Because if, if our guys are listening to Mazzucatu and there's a new um, perhaps wave of thought that's coming through, we might be stuck in the middle here. Um, I think across the world, Mazukatu and in general, the view that the state needs to be bigger and bigger and more involved in people's lives is winning. I mean, last year with COVID-19, with the pandemic and the lockdowns, we saw this. It was, I guess, a reason and in some ways an excuse for some people in government to exercise their worst tendencies to control people's lives. I mean, we had the banning of flip-flops and chicken and that kind of thing. Um, so that's taking it to the extreme. But it indicates that sort of view that the state needs to protect people to that extent. So I think uh, the the view of the developmental state is winning at this point in time. In Africa, of course, governments are fiscally constrained. Um, South Africa, I think, is heading towards 100% debt-to-GDP ratio within the next two years, which means it becomes more difficult to pay off our debt, um, government bonds don't bring in as much as they might have in the past. So government in some ways has to be careful with its spending, maybe not not very careful, but to a lesser extent. And that's partly what we saw um, in Minister Mbaweni's latest budget speech, a bit of a, a tightening of the fiscal belt. So I think the South African government at the moment, just in a nutshell, is caught between a bit of a rock and a hard place. It wants to ideologically it feels justified in massive spending and planning and guiding people's lives. But on the other hand, if it continues to down this path of just spending on everything, including SOEs, which should have been uh, closed down long ago, um, and money used for basic provision of infrastructure, for example, if you continue down that path, at some point you're just heading down the, I think, the black hole of, uh, of hyperinflation. You've been listening to Chris Hutton of the Free Market Foundation. Next, my colleague Melanie Nathan has the news highlights. Business confidence slid in the first quarter of the year. According to RMB, close to 7 out of 10 senior executives are concerned about current business conditions. Such low confidence levels continue to highlight the fragility of economic recovery. Against such uncertain backdrop, the best contribution the government can make is to fulfill its promise of confidence-inspiring economic reform focused on private sector becoming the key driver of GDP growth, says Chief Economist Etienne Leroux. South Africa's state-owned rail and port company says it plans to scrap contracts worth billions of dollars awarded to companies including General Electric and Bombardier. Transnet applied to the High Court to have the contracts for over a thousand locomotives set aside because it said they were based on flawed market demand strategy. The company added that laws, government instructions and Transnet policy were deliberately ignored to make tender awards, conclude the contracts and affect payment. On the company front, MTN added 29 million customers and increased its adjusted full-year headline earnings per share by over 50%. The company suspended its dividend due to its near-term focus on faster deleveraging of its holding company and uncertainty around cash repatriation from Nigeria and COVID-19. GrowthPoint has announced increased operating profit of over 4 billion rand for the six months ended in December. Headline earnings per share increased by just over 5% and a dividend of nearly 60 cents per share was declared. SoftBank's Vision Fund injected at least $400 million into Greensill Capital at the end of last year, according to people familiar with the matter, increasing the potential losses faced by the tech investor. According to the Wall Street Journal, the cash was in addition to $1.5 billion the Vision Fund had invested in Greensill in 2019. The money was used as a financial backstop when another Vision Fund company, construction startup Katera, came close to defaulting on a loan to Greensill.
Subscribe to Biz News Premium for full access to the Wall Street Journal and more on this story. I'm Melanie Nathan and that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. Justin Rowe Roberts covers the Johannesburg Stock Exchange for Biz News throughout the day. Justin, take us through the main developments on the JSE. JSE All Share Index was slightly down to 68,300. Some of the day's highlights include Old Mutual spin-off Quilter climbed 8% to a 52-week high of 34 rand a share on the back of better-than-expected financial results. Kumba decreased 35 rand to 600 rand a share, with iron ore prices declining as China's infrastructure-led economy recovery begins to plateau. South Africa's second-largest telecommunications provider, MTN, decreased slightly to 74 rand a share as the company released its year-end results and suspended dividend payments. Despite 10 set up strongly in Hong Kong this morning, NASPERS and PROCESS were both flat at 3,500 and 1,750 rand respectively. In the currency markets, the rand strengthened against all the major currencies to 15 rand and 14 cents against the greenback, 21 rand and 8 cents against the sterling, and 18 rand and 5 cents against the euro. Gold was flat on the day at $1,718 an ounce. Bitcoin continues to surge with one coin of the premier cryptocurrency putting you back 850,000 rand. Lastly, Brent crude was flat at $67 a barrel. And that's all we've got time for here on the Biz News Power Hour. From me, Jackie Cameron, and the rest of the Biz News team, thank you for joining us. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow on Fine Music Radio and streamed live to the global Biz News community. You can also catch up on all of the interviews on the Biz News Power Hour on our Spotify channel. Until next time. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.